Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, as we come to your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning, pray, God, that you would give us soft hearts, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to teach us, Lord, and that you would help us to glory in the truth of the gospel. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please open up to John chapter 19. Uh, If you are here and you don't have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you, and it will be on page 906 of that red Bible. Uh, Today, as we continue our study in the gospel of John, we have come to the place where we are now sitting in the shadow of the cross. It seems to be a very holy place, a very sacred place, a place where we sit with the Apostle John and look upon our Savior's dying breaths and hear his final words. And so that's where we're at today. John chapter 19, we'll look at verses 28 through 37. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Verse 30, again, Jesus says, it is finished. 
In the English, this is three words, but in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, it is a single word. That single word is tetelestai. Charles Spurgeon said of this word tetelestai, he says, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all the other words that ever were spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain to it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. It is finished is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. A.C. Gabling adds, Never before and never, ab- never after was ever spoken one word which contains and means so much. It is the shout of mighty victory. And who can measure the depths of this one word? A.W. Pink writes, Eternity will be needed to make manifest all that Tetelestai contains. And finally, Charles Simeon says, every word and deed that proceeds from the Savior lips deserves the most attentive consideration. But to Telestai eclipses all. To do justice to it is beyond the ability of men or angels, I might add, or preachers. Its height and depth and length and breadth are absolutely unsearchable. Tetelestai is the greatest word ever spoken in human history by the greatest human who ever lived in human history on the greatest day in human history. And so what does this word tetelestai mean? Well, one Greek-English lexicon tells us this, defines it this way. And there's three uses of this word tetelestai. Tetelestai is a verb, which means it's an action word. And it, is, uh, it, is, it has these three meanings which are all fairly similar and connected. First, to telestai means to complete an activity or process, often translated simply to finish. Secondly, it is to carry out an obligation or a demand. Often this time it's translated to fulfill. In the Gospel of John, John only uses this word to telestai on two occasions. Both instances are in our passage here today. Obviously, when Jesus says it is finished, that is one way that the word tetelestai is used, but it's also used in verse 28 when John says that Jesus did these things to fulfill or tetelestai the scriptures. The third way that this word tetelestai is used is to uh, talk about to pay what is due, simply translated to pay. And I, and I share these three ways that this word is translated and used because I think as Christ proclaims it is finished on the cross, I think he's referring to all three of these ways of translating this word tetelestai. And so I want to look at this word tetelestai, which, which is simply translated, it is finished. And I want to ask three questions. I want to ask what was finished, how was it finished, and why was it finished? How, what, and why. First, what. What was finished? 
And this part of the Gospel of John, John is constantly pointing us back to the Old Testament in order to show us that the scriptures are being fulfilled in the death of Christ. If you look back at verse 23, which we covered last week, but we'll read again. Verse 23 says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. As we discussed last week, this was a fulfillment of Psalm 22 and the other things that happened in this death of Christ that are listed in this passage fulfills other prophecies of Psalm 22. For example, Jesus was surrounded by dogs, which were the Romans that crucified him. He was encircled by evildoers, which were the other thieves on the cross. His hands and his feet were pierced, as Psalm 22 says. And of course, here we read that his garments were divided up by the casting of lots. What's amazing is Psalm 22, as we noted last week, was written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ and 600 years before the invention of the cross as a means of execution. But here, John is listing for us a reminder that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of God from the Old Testament. Even through unwilling and unknowing participants like the Roman soldiers. Now as we turn to today's passage, Jesus is continuing to fulfill the scriptures. But unlike the Roman guards and the Roman soldiers, he is doing it knowingly and actively seeking to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. This doesn't happen often, but in this case it does. That Jesus is thinking through his head. Have we fulfilled all the prophecies of Genesis? Check. Exodus? Check. Leviticus? Check. And then he gets to Psalm 69. And he says, wait, there is one more prophecy that must be fulfilled. Psalm 69, 21 says... Talking about the suffering servant, it says, And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And so, in verse 28, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill, that is to tell us die, to, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now the sour wine that's mentioned in this passage should not be confused with the wine that was mixed with myrrh that was offered to Jesus as he carried the cross up to Calvary. That wine which was mixed was with myrrh served to be a, uh, a, a sedative that would help dolen the pain of the cross. Jesus rejected that because he wanted to bear the full wrath of God upon the cross for us to drink that cup for us. But now here on the cross, Jesus is actively and willingly fulfilling the scriptures so that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, that he has been sent to finish the prophecies of God. And so Jesus says in accordance with Psalm 69, I thirst and the Roman soldiers unknowingly help fulfill this prophecy with this Bizarre sign of generosity to give Jesus a drink of their sour wine. Skipping down to verse 36. 
we read, For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now we'll discuss this a lot more in the next point, but unlike the other two criminals, Jesus' legs were not broken. And, G- and John points this out because this was a fulfillment of another prophecy. Psalm 34 20 tells us that he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now what else is interesting about this prophecy and the fulfillment of it was that Jesus' death was during Passover. And one of the regulations for the Passover lamb was that their legs, their bones, were not to be broken. It says in Numbers 9.12, speaking of the Passover lamb, that they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones, according to the statute for the Passover that they shall keep. Now, if you remember, the blood of the Passover lamb would be sprinkled on the doorposts of the people of God, and they would sprinkle that on the doorpost with a hyssop branch. What's interesting is John actually includes the detail in this gospel account that's in no other gospel accounts, that when they gave Jesus that wine vinegar, they did it with a hyssop branch, again, pointing to the Passover. And so Jesus' bones not being broken is another reminder to us that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb that all other prior Passover lambs pointed to. As 1 Corinthians 5 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Chapter 19 continues, verse 37. It says, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have Pierce, talking about the spearing of Christ, which again we'll talk more about in our next point. But this is significant because this is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah was, was written to the people of God when they returned from Babylonian exile. They were discouraged. They were not sure that God was going to win the day. Things seemed to be falling apart. The city wasn't being rebuilt. And so God writes through Zechariah to encourage his people. And he ends the book of Zechariah with the promised Davidic ruler who is going to come and set all things right. This righteous ruler who would bring salvation. And this is what it says about that coming Messiah in Zechariah 12. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they, on him whom they have pierced. Notice, notice how it repeats. It says on me, but also on him saying, me, the Lord is him who will be pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, the only begotten son of God, and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn, the oldest son of of Mary. This prophetic promise that the future Davidic Messiah would be pierced and they would look upon him is clearly fulfilled in the cross of Christ. And so with all of these prophecies in mind that are being fulfilled, I want to return to that, to that question. What, what is finished at the cross? Why is John pointing out that the Roman guards unknowingly, unwittingly are fulfilling the prophecies and that Jesus is knowingly and actively fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament? Well, John is telling us these things so that we may know that what is finished on the cross are the ancient purposes of God, the ancient plan of God, the ancient 
promises of God to save his people from their sins and from death itself. Bill Perkins of Compass International did a, a, a study to see what the, the likelihood would be of Christ fulfilling prophecies, these prophecies of the Old Testament. There's over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that are fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. And so Bill just takes eight of these prophecies that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, something that he could not control. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Clothes would be gambled away. Hands and feet would be pierced. Bones would not be broken. Born in the tribe of Judah. Called from Egypt. Buried, buried in a rich man's grave. And so he took just these eight prophecies out of the 300 prophecies to figure out what are the odds of these eight prophecies coming true in any single human being. And to give a visual illustration of his results, he said, suppose we filled the entire state of Texas with 100 trillion silver dollars. That would make the entire state two feet deep in coins. And then we took one coin and we marked it and we threw it into the middle of the state and we stirred it all up and then we, we put a blindfold on a person and sent them into the state and said, pick out that one coin that has the mark on it. He said, this is the chance that all eight of those prophecies would be fulfilled in a person. And yet Christ did not have eight prophecies fulfilled. He had over 300 prophecies fulfilled. And he says the odds of these 300 biblical prophecies being fulfilled is ridiculously astronomical, simply incalculable. See, all the prophecies that John mentions that are fulfilled in the life and death of Christ are proof that God was fulfilling his promise to his people to save them from their sins. And that he was fulfilling that promise in a very interesting way that none of them had guessed, that he would fulfill that promise through Christ dying on the cross. Now this ought to be a great comfort to us, to know that the scriptures are reliable and true, to know that the promises of God are certain. You see, there are promises of God that are yet not fulfilled for us. God promises us of a new heavens and a new earth. God promises an eternal life of free of suffering and pain. God promises us that we get to be with him forever. And the reason we can be confident that God will fulfill these promises is because he fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament and the death of Christ upon the cross. And so what was finished at the cross? What was finished at the cross was the ancient prophecies plan and promises of God to save his people from their sins. Next, how was it finished? How was God's ancient plan and promises to save sinners finished on the cross? Well, the simple answer is that it was finished through the death of God's son, Jesus. Look at verse 30 with me. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Not, not the Holy Spirit, but he gave up his human spirit because his body was now dead. And then John moves on to assure us that Jesus was certainly dead. You see, even at the time of John writing this gospel, certainly a lot of rumors were circulating that, that on the cross Jesus was faking it or that Jesus was just asleep or that Jesus was just unconscious. And so John wants to make sure that we know that Jesus was truly dead. Verse 31. Since it was a day of preparation, 
And so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. It was a special Sabbath because of the Passover. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So let me explain a little bit here. The Jews asked, not just for Jesus, but for all of those men that were hanging on the cross, for their legs to be broken. And the reason why they did this is because they wanted to speed up their death. You see, the way that a person died upon the cross was through exhaustion and suffocation. They would pin their arms out, and as they would sink down under the weight of their own body, they wouldn't be able to breathe. And so they would lift themselves up on the nail, hammered through their feet, and take a gasp of breath, and then they would go back under. And they couldn't breathe. And then every time they needed a breath, they would have to push themselves back up on that nail through their feet. Sometimes people hung on crosses for days, waiting till they were completely exhausted, could no longer lift themselves up, and through that exhaustion would come to the point where they would eventually suffocate and die. It was a horrible way to die. And then the Romans would leave them on the cross for birds to come and to eat their flesh. The Jews didn't want that. The Jews did not want than to hang on the cross for days because in the Old Testament it says that if you put someone to death on a tree and they they stay there overnight, well, first off, they are cursed, but if they stay there overnight, it will bring a curse to the whole land. And they did not want a curse on the land of Jerusalem, especially during Passover. So they said, Pilate, can we speed up the process a little bit? Can we break their legs so that they can't lift themselves up and breathe so that they'll suffocate very quickly? And we see Pilate's response, verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, smashing them with a club. And of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, probably because he was beaten so badly, says they did not break his legs. As we read earlier, this was a fulfillment of the scriptures that none of his bones would be broken just like the Passover lamb. But of course here people could could speculate. You know, his legs weren't broken. Maybe Jesus wasn't really dead. Of course that that can't be true because even if you're unconscious or if you're you're faking it or if you're asleep, if you're you're sunk down, you're not going to be able to breathe and you would die. Nonetheless, the, the Roman guards had to make sure that Jesus was truly dead. Because if they proclaimed Jesus to be dead and he wasn't, the punishment for the Roman guard is that they would be put to death. And so they wanted to make absolutely sure that Jesus was not just dead, but dead, dead. So verse 34, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. This description leads us to believe that they took a spear and jabbed it up through Jesus' abdomen, up under his ribcage, into his heart. The sac that surrounds the heart has this clear fluid that looks like water that flew out, but they also pierced some of the ventricles of the heart, which would have led blood to come out. And so the point John is making here for us is that Jesus was not faking death. Jesus was not merely unconscious, but Jesus was dead two times over. He suffocated to death, and now he was speared to death. Jesus was not just dead. Jesus was dead, dead. 
And John wants to make sure we know this because this is how the plan of God for our salvation was finished. By the death of Jesus Christ, God's perfect son upon the cross. You see, there was no other way that we could be saved. Because as we read in the scriptures, the punishment for sin is death. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, even before the fall of mankind, where the Lord comes to the man and he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That is God's law. That is God's rule. And then he tells us the penalty. He says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what's the word? Die, right? Romans puts it very succinctly for us. It says the wages of sin is death. And since all of us have sinned, all of us deserve to die. And not simply just a physical death, but a spiritual death, an eternal death in which we endure the justice and the wrath of God forever and ever. This is what we deserve. This is our debt to God. But the good news is the plan of God for our salvation was to send Jesus to take on our sin, to bear our penalty upon the cross, to take our debt away that we owe to God, which is death. I don't know if you've ever been in debt. Maybe you're in debt right now. You know it can be suffocating. There was a time uh, when Trish and I were moving from Bloomer, Wisconsin to St. Louis so I could attend seminary that we experienced some significant debt. We had put our house up for sale in Bloomer, Wisconsin, and we had a contract um, for someone to purchase it. Meanwhile, we bought a house in St. Louis. The contract in Bloomer, Wisconsin fell through. And so there we were with two mortgages. And and I don't know if you know this, but they don't pay you a lot to go to seminary. Um, In fact, they take money from you. And so there we are on a single income. My wife was a teacher, a young teacher, and we had to pay two mortgages and pay for my school loans. And there were many nights I was awake because was so burdened by, by all of this debt that we were under. And, and we simply could not pay it. And so we were, at least I was, extremely stressed out. Lord, what's, what's going to happen? What should we do? How can we get out from under this debt? But then finally, a family member came along. And they said, you know what, I will, I'll buy the house for you in St. Louis. You could imagine our relief. You could imagine our gratitude, right? Now, the one clause was that we had to pay them back. Jesus pays our debt, and there is nothing we can do to pay him back. You see, often in the day of Jesus, if you owed someone something, there would be written up, this certificate of indebtedness. Uh, It would be written up if you owed someone a large sum of money. It would be written up uh, if you owed someone some service or some goods. It it would even be written up if you had to go to prison. It would be the certificate of indebtedness. And here's the thing, when that debt was paid off, either by you or by someone else, it would be stamped with a single word. And that single word that it would be stamped with would be the word tetelestai. It is finished. It has been paid in full. 
No doubt this is what Jesus is declaring at the cross, that our debt of sin, our punishment for sin, which is death, has been paid in full by Christ at the cross. That's why in Colossians 2, Paul proclaims that he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. He was able to forgive our trespasses because he absorbed the debt for us. And it says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Again, Charles Spurgeon says, what a grand utterance is to tell us die. Now are we safe, for salvation is complete. The sin debt was now all discharged. The atonement and propitiation, that is satisfaction for sin, were made once and for all and forever by the one offering made in Jesus' body on the tree. And then he says, there was the cup. Hell was in it. The Savior drank it. He drained it till there is not a dredge left for any of his people. What was finished at the cross? The plan and promises of God to save his people. How was it finished on the cross? By the death of Christ who took on our place, who took on our sin and took the punishment we deserve. Finally, why was it finished? It's true, Jesus, Jesus finished it to pay our debt, but he also finishes it demanding a response from us. Verse 35 says, he who saw, John is talking about himself. He does this in his gospel. He refers to himself in the third person a lot. Says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. See, John is writing to skeptics and he's saying, I know that these things happen because unlike the other apostles, I was there at the foot of the cross. I heard what Jesus said. I saw what come out of his body. I know this is true because I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. He continues and says, and he knows that he is telling the truth. And here's the why. That you also may believe. You know, John is very clear that he did not write the details about Jesus' death simply so that we could get his perspective on it. He wrote the details of the death of Christ so that we might believe that it is true and that through believing we may have eternal life. If you skip forward to the next chapter, John 20, verse 30, John writes this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then back, if you remember John 17, he tells us what this life is, what this eternal life is. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so why did Jesus finish the work of salvation? So that we might believe. And that by believing we might have eternal life. And this is eternal life to know the one and only true God today and forevermore. Now I want to make sure we understand here that this belief is not simply an abstract, academic, inconsequential belief. 
Like, you know, do you believe if Pluto is a planet or not? Really doesn't matter, does it? John is calling us to believe in such a way that we rest our, our everything on this truth. That we rest our eternity on this truth. You know, just the other night, uh, we were putting our kids to bed and we were in our, our youngest two share a bedroom and they started talking about trust falls. I'm not sure where they heard of this term trust fall, but, but so I explained to them what a trust fall is. A trust fall is when you fall and someone catches you and says, okay, let's, let's do a trust fall. So I was kneeling on the ground with my arms out and the first child comes up and they're literally like six inches away from me facing forward. And I said, no, this is not how a trust fall works. You have to back up and you have to turn around so you can't see. And you have to trust that I'm going to catch you. And if you trust that I'm going to catch you, that means you're not going to shuffle your feet. You're not going to bend your knees, right? But you're going to trust that I'm going to catch you. And if I don't catch you, you're going to be seriously injured. That's what a trust fall is. And so, so our two children took turns trying out this trust fall. Now, they both believed that I had the strength to catch them. They both believed that I had the desire to catch them. But I will say one of them was able to keep their feet still and keep their legs straight as they fell backwards. That is the belief that God is calling us to. God is calling us to trust in him with such a great degree that if this is false, it's going to bring a significant pain for all eternity. Do you believe, do you trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Do you rest in him and him alone for your salvation? Or are you still striving to gain God's approval? Are you here today trying to get your act together to be acceptable before God so that he will take you into his presence? Are you here today trying to improve your portfolio before you ask God to receive you? On the other end, maybe you're here today saying, you know, I'm so sinful, there's no way God would ever take me. Jesus says, it is finished, it is paid for, it in full. Do you believe? Because if you believe, you have eternal life. And if you have eternal life, that means that you know God and that you will be with God forever and ever. So what was finished on the cross? God's promised plan to save sinners was finished on the cross. How was it finished on the cross? By the death of Christ in our place who drank the cup of God's wrath that we deserve. What was finished on the cross? Why was it finished on the cross? So that we might believe and have eternal life and know God starting today and forevermore. Let me end with this. The evangelist Alexander Wooten was approached by a young man who asked Andrew Wooten, what must I do to be saved? Wooten replied, it's too late. The young man was, was desperate. He said, do you mean it's too late for me to be saved? Are you saying there's nothing I can do? Wooten replied, too late. It's already been done. It is finished. The only thing you can do is believe. You see, friends, if you are wondering what is the difference between Christianity and every other religion, it is summarized in this statement, it is finished. See, every other religion can be summarized in this one word, do. Do good things to appease God. 
Do what is right to earn God's favor. Do not do what is bad to avoid God's wrath. But Christianity is summarized in a very different word. Not the word do, but the word done. The salvation of sinners is done by Christ on the cross. The payment for the penalty of sin is done by Christ on the cross. The satisfaction of God's just wrath is done upon the cross. John calls us to believe it is done, it is complete, it has been paid in full. He calls us to believe it is finished. Let's pray. (coughs) Oh Lord, our sin, not in part but the full, is nailed to the cross. What a glorious thought. That there is nothing more that we can contribute to our salvation. We can't make you love us more. We can't make you love us less. You love us because of Christ and Christ alone. And because he has finished this work upon the cross, we can be confident that we are received by you, that we are accepted by you, and that we belong to you for all eternity if we believe. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who's maybe trying to to get their act together to, to be acceptable before you, God. I just pray that they would stop, that they would stop laboring to earn your favor and that they would know that there's one who labored on their behalf, Jesus Christ. And through his death on the cross, it is finished. The penalty for all of their sin has been removed Because of your promised one, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, as we turn to your table, we're reminded of the finished work of Christ. That we can now rest. That we don't need to be restless in our souls and in our hearts and in our minds, wondering if you will accept us and love us, if we're good enough. But we can rest in the finished work of Christ and Christ alone. And so as we receive these elements, remind us in our hearts and in our souls of tetelestai, that it is finished and that we are yours now and forevermore. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.